Today's scripture, Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The word of the Lord. Good morning, friends. Panador Church, good to be with you on what is now the third Sunday of the Lenten season. I know that some of you are observing this Lenten season through various fasts, fasts of various kinds. Um, I know others of you are not. Uh, (laughs) I'm not actually this year, so you're on good standing in this church if you're not either. Um, but, But either way, whether you're observing Lent through fasting or not, I have a question for you, and that is simply, why? So whether you are observing through fasting, the question is why, or not observing through fasting, the question is why not? And I ask because I think, I have a hunch, that the answer may be the same for us all. Um, And that answer being simply survival. That's really what we spend the bulk of our lives trying to do is survive. So if you happen to be someone who is not fasting, you are seeking to survive. You prefer to nourish your body with food. If you happen to be someone who is fasting, you may well prefer to be nourishing your soul with spirituality. But either way, the point is the same. The point is nourishment. The point is being nourished. The point is leading yourself into a place of growth and health so that you can sustain yourself, so that you can push back against the night, as it were. Push back against the darkness so that you can reach for life. And this is what the overwhelming majority of people, dare I say, everyone, everywhere is always doing all the time, reaching for life. We're seeking to survive. We're seeking to hold on to life, seeking to climb up into that place of health and growth and sustained life. We want better life. We want real life because our lives on this earth are so precarious. They're so unstable. Our physical life can be snuffed out in an instant, And all of the complexity and meaning of the relationships of your life, all of the story arcs of your life can just come to an end in a moment. Likewise, our emotional lives are similarly vulnerable, almost as vulnerable as our physical lives. One experience of trauma can send you spinning. It can crush 
your soul, can crush your spirit, can destroy your emotional life. It's a dangerous place to live here in our world. I mean, have you ever just, as an exercise, pondered all of the different creative ways that you might meet your demise? (laughs) You ever thought about all the ways that you could die? That would be a good contemplative exercise for the season of Lent. (laughs) Nice and morbid, good and painted door-ish, right? It would be a very long list of things that could take your life, right? I mean, you've got, what, riding lawnmower accidents. That's You've got to watch out for those. You've got poisonous berries. That's a classic. Um, Then you've got old age, Right, what, a ridic- <laughs> what a ridiculous cause of death, old age, right? You died because you aged. In other words, why did Grandpa Bob die? Too much life. He just lived, and that made him die. So you know that you live in a dangerous world when living makes you die, right? The world is precarious. Our lives are precarious. They can be taken from us in a moment, and we have very little control over that, and many of us feel the futility of fighting against that, even though we spend the overwhelming majority of our times fighting against it. That's how we spend our lives, is like pushing back against death, trying to feed ourselves, trying to clothe and nurture ourselves, make ourselves more healthy so that we won't go into the night, and yet we know that it's futile. We know actually where the final bit comes, where the story actually ends, And we can feel that no matter how much we are eating right or disciplining ourselves spiritually, that none of that ultimately will prevent us from coming into that dark place and tasting death. And I think we know that because of suffering. So the suffering that is in this life, the just routine, everyday, nothing extraordinary about it, pain, challenge, hurt that's in this life, it's all a foretaste of where we're ultimately heading. It's a foretaste of death. It reminds us in a very visceral way of just how precarious our lives are. We know what's coming, and we know how brittle our lives truly are. I don't know about you, but when I begin to suffer even though it's tipping me off to the reality of my death, that tends to be when I most redouble my efforts to push back against death, to push back against sorrow, to push back against my own demise. I like recommit myself to this futile exercise, even as the suffering is testifying to its futility to me. Uh, And we spend an enormous amount of energy in places like this even, in churches and synagogues and mosques and bookstores, seeking to find some remedy for our spiritual suffering. We spend enormous amount of ingenuity on medical practice and procedures so that we can push back against our physical suffering. Many of you have spent countless hours in therapy. You've spent enormous amounts of money in therapy to push back against emotional suffering. We are always trying to push this darkness back and engaging in this project that ultimately we know is futile. And how's it going? Anybody found a way out yet? I'd love to hear about it if you have. Anybody figured out a way to reduce suffering globally? 
Anybody found a way to solve that riddle of death? That'd be worth a pretty penny if you have. We spend all this time trying to solve these riddles, and yet we know ultimately that it's futile, that we'll be defeated, that suffering and death are sure. So the question that I want to ask or consider today is what if we just fully acknowledged that? What if we simply acknowledged that pushing back suffering and death, while right and good so far as it goes, is not a project that's worth defining our lives by? Or that if we do define our lives by it, then our life will wind up being a failure. So what if we come to that conclusion of acknowledging that survival is not worth defining life by, then what is? What could be an alternative? What is this all about? What could it be all about if not survival? If not fighting this futile battle against suffering and death? Well, we've been looking at uh, the book of Romans over this Lenten season. Specifically, we've been looking at Romans chapter 8, this great letter from the Apostle Paul to the first century church in Rome. And in today's text, Paul actually meets us with words that address these questions of suffering and death, and Paul would direct us toward a higher purpose in the face of suffering and death than merely survival. He'd direct us something greater than the fight to survive. He says this in verse 18 of chapter 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let me read that again. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. These are very careful and yet also potentially disconcerting words. They're very careful because Paul is not in any way diminishing the reality of suffering. He's acknowledging fully here that there is suffering in this present time. In fact, elsewhere throughout Paul's letters, he gives full-throated acknowledgement to that. It's clear that Paul understands how painful this life is and that he has experienced that firsthand in very visceral ways and is not seeking to diminish or minimize that in any way. Paul is not the sort of minister who would have you or anyone look on the bright side. That's not the sort of ministry that he's engaged in at all. But he is the sort of minister who would have you look beyond the horizon. And that can be rather disconcerting. When the solution or the remedy to the present here and now suffering is future-oriented, when it's beyond the horizon, that can be disconcerting, suffice to say. Paul is saying that this life here, it's full of suffering. He's acknowledging that death abounds, but he's offering no present remedy to reduce that, no solution to change that reality on the ground. He's meeting us with something more powerful than that, which you might call hope. 
He's pointing to some future reality. Hope is a strange commodity because with hope, the source of power doesn't depend on anything in the here and now. The cargo of hope is all freighted by the possibility of some future win. Hope does not require any current wins. doesn't require any current successes. It's not rooted in any way, shape, or form on what's happening now. It's looking to the future. So Paul is saying, yes, there's suffering now. There's no real chance of changing that per se, not in any ultimate sense. But he's saying there will be future tense, a glory revealed to us. There's coming a day, there's coming a time when all of the decay will be pushed back, when there will be a new creation. When the darkness will fall and give way to light and glorious harmony. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of of God. Can you hear the hope in Paul's words? The future hope in Paul's words. He's in essence saying all there is to do now in the here and now is wait. Because this here and now is full of futility and corruption. Everything about this place is broken. What's more, it's been subjected to that futility by God. It's not as though you or I have the capacity to alter that course. God has subjected this world to futility, Paul says, in hopes of redeeming it, in hopes of bringing to pass a new creation. He's burning this place up in hopes of rebuilding a new world from its ashes. He means for there to be a radical discontinuity, actually, between this world and the world to come. This world is passing away Behold, a new creation is emerging in its place. And we are not in a position to alter that course of being. Paul says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You hear the kind of language that Paul is using here? He's using metaphors. He's exclusively speaking in metaphors here. Talking about the creation groaning because it's in the pains of childbirth. Talking about we having the first fruits of the Spirit. Why speak in such metaphors? Well, because he is looking over the horizon. Paul is not rooting his hope or our hope in anything that he can see. In fact, he's rooting it in something that he can only imagine, something that you and I can only imagine. It's so tempting. So often we look for hope in the things that we can see, in the present circumstances of our lives. Paul is saying, no, no, no. Only see hope in that which you cannot 
yet see, that which is over the horizon, that which you can only imagine, that which can only be spoken of by way of metaphor. And the central metaphor here in this passage for Paul is this one of childbirth, this one of being in the pangs of childbirth, that this present creation is in labor, seeking to give birth to a new creation. I've witnessed now in my life four births, uh, three and a half, really. I fainted during the final one. Um, (laughs) But it was five and a half years ago now that my youngest son was born. And in each of the situations, in each of the births, each of the births of my four children, there were unique challenges. Uh, In the first three, you can slack my wife on the butt later. She went for it with no epidural. Uh, Please don't slap my wife on the butt later. She went for it with no epidural at all. And the experience of watching her labor, watching her give birth, it very much connected with the way Paul is speaking here. There was a lot of groaning, but also a lot of hoping. Because there's something glorious about to be revealed in the process of childbirth, but the process itself is tremendously painful and messy. When we had our fourth child, Bodhi, five and a half years ago now, we both came to our senses. We both got epidurals. At least that's how I remember. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's happened. It's fairly fuzzy in my mind, the whole fainting bit and all. But there was complications in the delivery because Bodhi was having a trouble breaking through And with each contraction, rather than being pushed down the birth canal, his little head was getting squeezed more tightly and more tightly. And we were laboring in a room with a midwife and a nurse, uh, and I remember watching their interactions. They were trying not to create any panic for Acacia or myself, and so they were looking at each other very tight-lipped. And whenever a contraction would take place, the heart monitor would show that Bodhi's little heart rate was plummeting down, down, down. And as the contractions grew more powerful, the heart rate would drop lower and lower and lower to the point where it reached about 30 to 40 beats per minute, which is dangerously low. And the midwife gave the nurse some kind of verbal signal, like make the call, and the nurse got on the phone and alerted the cesarean surgical team on hand there that we needed to get this baby out. And so within a matter of what seemed like seconds, our very kind of peaceful, calm birthing room, being attended by a midwife and a nurse, was invaded by a doctor and about a dozen assistants in tow. And this doctor entered and she announced to the room, we're getting this baby out now. And dad went a little weak in the knees. Um, And she took one look at me and said, get him out of (laughs) here. Thanks, dad, for all your courage and help. We will not be needing you to tumble onto mom with your (laughs) 250-pound washed-up high school footballer self. And so I was ushered over to a side bed and laid down there by two medical residents and they provided me with some apple juice while my wife (laughs) while my wife was placed on a stretcher and taken into the room for an emergency cesarean section and by the time I 
came to and got my strength back and scrubbed in so that I could go watch the birth of my son. I was walking down the hall and this doctor came out of the room, kind of brushed past me without looking at me and said, it's a healthy boy. Like she's just a day at the work for her, you know. Um, And it was a great sense of relief and joy and glory to know that the boy had been birthed into the world and that all of the pain, all of the groaning, all of the mess of it had yielded something glorious and wonderful. That's what labor is. Labor is painful. Labor is messy. Labor is dangerous. And yet there's this hope in it. Even in the middle of the groaning, there's this hope and this longing that something really worthwhile is going to come out of this. This is the metaphor that Paul is using in thinking about the creation and thinking about where it is that we live. Hope doesn't depend on the present moment, he's saying. If hope depended on the present moment, if the hope for a new child depended on how the birth and labor was going, we would lose heart. Because it's often a mess. It's often difficult. But hope looks over the horizon. It imagines the glory that's going to be revealed. The new creation that God is going to yield out of all of this. Paul writes, For in this hope we were saved... Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Church, the struggle for survival is not what defines us. Hope is what defines us. As the people of God, we are set free from being defined by what we see. Being defined by the wins and losses, successes and failures of the present condition. We can live in the confidence of hope. Or as Paul says, says elsewhere, faith, hope and love are what define us. Hope that God indeed is bringing to pass in some future moment a revelation of his glory. Faith that he is good to his word. These things sinking deep into the roots of our being and manifesting in expressions of love. We do not need any wins. We do not need any successes in this life in order to be who we are. We are free to be who we are completely independently from anything going well here. It's so crucial to know that, that we are sitting in that place of labor, longing for some future glory to be revealed from the hand of God. We're still in the mess. We're still in the waiting. We're still in the groaning. We're still in the hoping. We have this great advantage, though, in the Christian faith. This great advantage over any others who would seek to find some future hope. And that is that in the birthing of the new creation that God is bringing to pass, the head of the new creation has already been delivered. Jesus already broke through. He already sprang up out of the place of the ashes. He already conquered death. The head is already out. And only the body has now to follow. The hardest part is done. And the body will surely 
follow. But it's so crucial that we understand that that's where we are. Our head, Christ, has resurrected. We'll celebrate that in four weeks from now on Easter Sunday. That Jesus has broken through. But we all now are waiting and following. We're still in the birth canal, as it were. So crucial that you know that that's where you are. Because there's a great expectation or a delusion sometimes even in the life of faith where we imagine that we're already out. We imagine that the birth process is already complete. And then we're very confused and disoriented by all the challenge and disquieting moments and suffering and death that surrounds us in the here and now. We're not out. We're in the pains of childbirth. We're being sent down the birth canal, following our Lord Jesus into this new creation. We're still in the mess, still waiting, still groaning, still hoping. I can promise you this. If you make the mistake of living in the wins and successes of the present here and now, you will wind up hopeless. You will absolutely wind up hopeless because groaning is the only occasion for hope. If you live in the wins and successes of the here and now, if you live according to what you can see, you cut yourself off from the hope of our faith. The hope of our faith is not rooted in what can be seen. It's a future hope. It's in a revealing that is yet to fully materialize. And so groaning is the necessary occasion to live in the Christian hope. If you pretend that there's no groaning, you pretend that there's no hope. If you cut yourself off from acknowledging suffering, you cut yourself off from Christ. It's living in the full acknowledgement of the pain and disillusionment of right now that connects us to the hope of Christ, that allows us to see the salvation, the true salvation that he is offering. There are not enough wins in the here and now for you to be sustained by. But there is plenty of hope in what is over the horizon, in what can be imagined, in what can be spoken of in metaphor. The French existentialist Albert Camus once wrote, Men are never convinced of your reasons, of your sincerity, of the seriousness of your sufferings, except by your death. So long as you are alive, your case is doubtful. You have a right only to their skepticism. What he meant is that our sufferings will prove all too real, finally. That there's a trajectory to our sufferings. That ultimately they will be shown to be all too real in our death. And that all of our efforts, all of the world's skepticism, all the attempt to minimize suffering will fail because there is no minimizing death. There is a real enemy before us. The here and now, what we can see, it's hopeless to try to pretend otherwise, to try to be skeptical about the hopelessness of this here and now is folly. There's a hope only from beyond the horizon. This world is bleak and dangerous. Yet we who are people of faith, people who trust the words of Christ, 
we have something much more lovely to live for than success or survival. We have hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for the hope that is in you, that we are not dependent on what materializes in the biographies of our lives to remain rooted in hope. Father, I pray that you would stir our imaginations to look beyond the horizon in faith, to hear the words of what you have promised of a new creation, of a world without decay, of a place where death is defeated, and that we would hope in the king who has gone there before us and is making the way. Father, teach us to trust Jesus, even when we cannot see what he is up to and don't understand why it is that we are hurting. Lead us into places of love and the freedom that comes from hoping in you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.